you know, it can work in the choral class or any music setting because, you know, what we do is teamwork. You know, we're like a coach. And I used to try to use that analogy in the classroom, especially in the latter years, saying to the kids, you know, just think of me as a coach. I'm on the sidelines and I'm coaching you through this. And once it's game day, which, of course, the first performance, I can't yell out to you the plays. I can't remind you about breath control or, or vowel alignment or intonation. You have to put all those things that we practice every day. Free throws, layups, passing the ball, dribbling the ball, just catching the ball. I mean, just fundamental things that I transfer it over into music. Welcome to The Choir Baton, a podcast designed to engage with people and stories, ideas, and inspirations stemming from choir. No other art form, no sport, no hobby, no business requires a group of people to execute a communal goal with just their voices. Join me, your host, Beth Philemon, as I interview guests who are singers, teacher conductors, instrumentalists, and community members. Together, we'll ask questions, seek understanding, and share insight from our experiences in life and in choir. Choir Baton, it is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Mr. Marshall Butler. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So Marshall and I, and it still sometimes feels weird to call you Marshall, um, because so I'll probably like bounce back and forth between Marshall and Mr. Butler um, throughout the interview, share a unique um, path through intertwinings of choral music together. Um, when I was a high school student in choir, I you know, had an amazing high school choral experience and was also so blessed to be in a county where there were other high schools that were also just having amazing choir experiences as well. I know not every city is lucky enough to have that. And one of those colleges or colleges, one of those high schools with an amazing choir um, was that of Sanderson High School with Mr. Butler. And we knew that when you saw those blue dresses come, like you were going to hear amazing quality music. And fast forward just a couple of years, like a 10 or something like that. And um, when Marshall retired, there was a bit of a, a transition there, but I eventually uh, ended up teaching at Sanderson, which is like the biggest dream of a gig and um, got to live in the, literally in the, your footsteps um, for my last teaching placement. And so much so, I don't know if you know this, but aside from it being called the Marshall Butler Choir Room, um, I found a picture of you from a student and it was like you holding the door open, welcoming kids into the classroom. And I had that picture on my office door. So when I was sitting so you're with me. I, when I was ever sitting at my desk, um, I could always see your picture. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, it, it's hard following a legend, right? Um, and I am just so grateful that that legend was you because you instilled such a, a love for choir music. But enough about me and me talking about you. Marshall Butler, how did you become a choir teacher? Oh, that's an interesting question. I actually was a piano major and I had no desire to teach. My initial 
plan was to become a piano, a studio musician. I wanted to play in the studio and just play for various artists and um, just kind of be in the background. But I was blessed to have an amazing choral director in college who inspired me. And having a good experience with the student teaching also kind of made me, I guess, aspire to teach. Right, right. Wow. Okay. And so was your undergrad in, or was it, was it in piano performance or education? It was in education. Okay. And of course, being a piano major, um, choir, general music yeah. um, was going to be your experience right. during student teaching. Right. Was Sanderson your first, uh, first place that you started teaching at, or what was your first school? My first school was at Rocky Mountain Senior High School. Um, which was an amazing experience, especially because it was my first teaching job and to teach at a high school, as you well know, um, it's a little bit different from teaching middle school, junior high, or elementary school. Right. And um, I fortunately had the opportunity to meet my predecessor. He actually was retiring due to health um, issues and he was just fabulous about bringing me and introducing me to each class that first day that I um, taught. And um, it's a good experience. Yeah. Yeah. Being in a small county where there was only one high school where you could actually go talk to the superintendent without scheduling a meeting, just kind of walk in his office if he was available and he knew you by name. That was really good. What is something that you think you really took away, really learned from that school experience? My first teaching experience? Yeah. Um, that it's okay to make a mistake. That it's okay to um, admit you alone. And, um, you know, just being honest, I found, I learned very early on that students would respect me more if I was just honest with them right. and let them know that this is my first time doing this and you know we'll get together. Yeah. It was good, good experience. That authenticity I think that you had then, I mean, is what you're known for to this day. It's the thread of your being. Oh, you're so kind, but thank you. Well, I mean it. I mean it. So from from the Rocky Mount High School, then did you go to Sanderson or was there a couple of places in between? Actually, um, when I first came to Wake County, I came to one of the optional schools. I don't know if you are familiar. They call them alternative schools. Uh -huh. And um, I came with the intention of just, I was burned out from, well, for one, driving 42 miles one way to work every day for 10 years. And my children were getting of age where I really need to be closer to home. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so I worked from that March until the end of that school year. And um, then the Sanderson job came available. Um, the person that was leaving the core program there was going into administration. As a matter of fact, he left Sanderson and went to Leesburg. Was it Floyd Lohman? No, actually, his name was Anthony Jackson. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. He later went on to get into, um, I think he went to Durham School of the Arts, and from there he went to somewhere in Virginia. 
and he eventually became a superintendent. But we had met prior through doing um, the coral camps at East Carolina. So that was kind of our connection there. Yeah. yeah. And so what was what was that program like when you took it over? Because Sanderson's choir program has had a long tradition of excellence. Yeah, and it's interesting you say that because um, before Tony, well, Mr. Jackson, Dr. Jackson, was Floyd Loman. And um, from what I understand, you know, the kids love him. Um, and prior to his coming, I believe it was Jurgen. Gene Jurgen was actually my high school music teacher. And he was the person who inspired me to want to go to school and make music. So it was kind of ironic that, you know, I came to Sanderson. Because I remember his first year at Sanderson watching the program going, wow. Amazing would it be to have a full program like this? And who knew, you know, 10 years later, nine years later, however long it was that I would be there. I have goosebumps. <laughs> small, small world, small world. Well, tell us about, I mean, you were at Sanderson for 22 years? Um, you know, I, I can't remember. I'm not sure if it was 22, 20, I think it was 24. Okay. So, okay. I, I mean, that tenure in a program and at one school is not something that we see these days, right? For a variety of reasons. Um, what what was that like? I mean, you built a dynasty when you were there. Be kind, Beth. I, I no, Samson had a reputation prior to my coming. Um, I joked about being there the longest of all of the, you know, the previous teachers. However, I was very comfortable there um, and I enjoyed the community because as you know, Sanderson is a very unique school um, and the community the climate is very, very unique in that um, people, you know, they more like a family. It was a much larger school than I came from, however, it was still very unique in the, like I said, the community field. So I think probably that kept me there. I'm just being, you know, satisfied, you know, content. I enjoyed choral music, had no desire to want to go on to higher learning. Um, just enjoyed high school students. And I felt that connection. I felt like I could make a difference, truly make a difference. Yeah, yeah. What's one of your most favorite memories from from that time, from Sanderson, sure, or any, but San, you know Sanderson right now maybe. You know, there's so many. I can't just name one. But you can name you can name as many as you want. I'd love to hear your stories. I, I honestly just I think. Oh my gracious! This requires some thought. And being retired <laughs> for a few years, you know, I have to think a little harder. But. Mm -hmm. um, just, I think there were many. One would be having an opportunity to teach my own child. My oldest daughter was in the fourth book with Davis. And, um, you know, that was, I think, pretty cool because that was her choice, her choosing. She sang in middle school, elementary school, and he decided after the first week of school at Sanderson that he wanted to do course, continue course. I think she had to see that her dad was 
Mm-hmm. You understand? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, that was one of the, I think, yeah, there's so many, I, oh my gracious, um, watching so many young people do so well um, in life, watching them come back. My favorite memories are students who desire to come back to visit. Those who wanted to just say thanks or those who just want to talk to the kids and just say, hey, if you really, really want to do music or you really, really are serious about committing to whatever your future is, you need to um, take it serious. And, and a lot of what they were saying were life lessons they learned in the classroom. And that made me feel good. Um, but bringing in, having an opportunity to bring in community members to um, speak to the students periodically had several, um, there was a youth pastor and I'm trying to think of his name, I can't believe Kurt, Kurt Solomon, one of the coolest people I've ever met. I met him at a, a, a baccalaureate we had one year and called the kids were like, Kurt, speak to me. And I was like, who's Kurt? When I saw this young man and then I heard his message, um, I saw why. So we developed a, a long lasting relationship where he would come and he would do these non, um, they were, I wouldn't say denominational, they were more like just, he was, he was just an awesome storyteller. And he could, I would say, I need you to talk to the kids about integrity. He could come in and talk to them without beating the Bible over their heads and, and um, you could hear a pin drop. He was just so captivating. That's one of those times that I really, really enjoyed working with Samson, having an opportunity, having um, administration that supported the program um, I'm gracious. Um, all of my memories, Beth, are going to be student focused. You know, nothing, no awards, no accolades. It's just, it was all about the kids. I think also having the opportunity to meet someone who came to me and offered to help financially assist students that were in need, um, like you know, buying uniforms and, and um, just having parents who were always asking, what can I do? How can I help? Um, of course, you know, sometimes parents can be, uh, <laughs> they mean well, because I'm a parent, you know, and I used to tell kids, I used to tell parents all the time, I'm a, I'm a parent first. So I recognize it. You know, some parents are, are I don't want to say zealous, that sounds understanding. Um, they were eager to help. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Balancing that is always um, fun. Fun. Um, but to your point, right, you're a parent first. And I think both you felt that for your own kids, but the choir kids were your own kids. And you were a father figure for so many students, students that had father figures in their life, students that didn't have father figures in their life, students, you know, like you, you were that parental person. And I think it's important to point out that from my understanding too, it wasn't that mom will let you do anything. Like there was some tough Marshall Butler love in there. Oh yes. Oh yes. Yes. One of my favorite um, kids I remember on one of our trips, David Cole, me. I remember he was a student, and it said that I yell because I care. I love that pen, and I used to wear it 
uh, required because he totally got what I was trying to do. Yeah. One of my former colleagues had on, when we started using email, and on what her tagline was, students don't care how much you know until they know you care, how much you care. And I asked her, I said, can I borrow that? She said, you can have it, I'm retired. So I tried to live by that. But it's that balance of tough love and also showing care. Yeah, you know, um, and I remember years ago having a student teacher who was phenomenal as a musician, but lacked the ability to connect with students. And so I remember asking him the question, I said, what's the most, what's more important, the product or the process? And he paused for a second, he said, product. And I said, no, both, they both are equal. So you can have, you know, these moments where kids can feel good, you can always, you know, tell them how much you love them and, and we can spend all of our time talking about emotions and not get any work done. Or you can be a taskmaster, master and you know and, and kids hate you but produce this perfect product um but at the end of the day what have you done other than just produce the product and students are more than a product yeah i one of the things that i i loved is uh when I, when I came into the position, there was someone in between, oh, a couple people in between Marshall and I, um, one semester between when he retired and I started. Um, and so the room was, uh, needed some organizing. And so I began to organize uh, things and came across so many papers, tests, and you also, you gave me a lot of organized, um, tests and things that I use that attest to your process. Um, I think that was one of the coolest things is the level that I saw of um, sight reading that you were having students do, the level of musicality um, is also a testament though to your passion for the process to engage a, an amazing product as well. So hearing you talk about how they're both important, I mean, I have literally held the papers that show the evidence of the work that you've put in to do that. but. Would you share with us a little bit about, you know, how, what your process is for developing that musicality that honors the process and the product? I can't take credit for that. And once again, thank you. Just too kind for accolades. But um, during my tenure in Rocky Mountain, there was a famous basketball coach who coached a couple of NBA players, and he was a legend. And he had retired, and they brought him back in. Um, out as a coach, and so I asked him that year that he took the team back over if I could just shadow him. So I shadowed him from the first day of tryouts until the first game, and I learned so much from him. The first thing I learned from him was to develop a mutual level of respect. Um, you know, you have to insist on students respecting you, but at the same time, and no, no uncertain terms when you disrespect them. Um, and that was the first thing I learned from him. It's just, a, just making sure that the kids know that you care about them. Because once they know that you care, I mean, for example, with him, he would say jump and those boys would say how high. And that was because 
he showed them how much he loved them and how much he cared for them and how much, well, obviously he knew the game. He knew all this X and O's, but he had a passion for them. He wanted to know more about what they could do on the court. He could tell you um, about every boy that made that team. And even some of those who didn't make the team. Um, and his just his process going from, like I said, the tryouts to that first game, learned so much about teamwork and how much, you know, it can work in the choral class or any music set because, you know, what we do is teamwork. You know, we're like a coach. And I used to try to use that analogy in the classroom, especially in the latter years, saying to the kids, you know, just think of me as a coach. I'm on the sidelines and I'm coaching you through this. And once it's game day, which of course reflects the performance, I can't yell out to you the plays. I can't remind you about breath control or vowel alignment or intonation. You have to put all those things that we practice every day. And I'm going to go back using his comparison, um, free throws, um, layups, passing the ball, dribbling the ball, just catching the ball. I mean, just fundamental things that I transferred over into music. Um, and trying to find a balance where I didn't spend the first two weeks of school trying to get the kids to sing in tune. However, defining what intimation was so that they would know, so they could kind of have some, some kind of bar as to, okay, this is where I need to get to. Once they understood what singing in tune was, then they could all work towards the same goal. Once again, it goes back to the teamwork. Um, but as I said before, just watching him, I learned so much about respect and how to get respect um, and, you know, how to receive it. As a big basketball fan, I love that connection as well. And I do, I think, I think there's so much we can learn from sports and athletics still. Now, I think there's a lot of athletics can learn from us, but I think that we, even down to game tape, right? Like watching game tape, um, so many different levels. I wonder if I could get Coach K to like, let me watch his process, maybe not. Um, I understand that he's a good person. If you could get him to let you shower. Yeah. <laughs> it would be a good one to do. Man. Uh, yeah. It's really a... tough, though. What, uh, someone's told me that they watched him, and um, he's really tough. Of course, you would know that during the game because, you know, that all of that led towards that particular game. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that this might be a controversial question? Uh, I don't know. Do you think that? kids can handle the same level of toughness today that they could like did you find yourself um having to maybe like adjust or i don't know i feel yeah. good question good question so hopefully i'm going to answer your question by saying this the way i taught my last year at sanderson my my teaching style my method my approach was quite different from what it was say maybe 10 years prior to that when my daughter was in school. And the way I taught when she was in school was very different from the way it was 10 years prior to that. So um, I think we have to change with the times. I don't think we need to lower our expectations. I think as one student, and I love to quote students, and I like to give people the credit. One student told me one time, she said, no, you don't need to dumb down. We need to smart up. Was that not profound? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So to say that, to say um, discipline was always important, uh, teaching the kids discipline, um, but also getting them to understand the newer generation, the latter, from the latter years, I found myself explaining to them the importance of discipline versus the years before they figured it out throughout the process. This is why he did this. Um, and so many kids came from so many different home lives and, and their, their circumstances. Um, I couldn't teach them the same way. As a matter of fact, I had to learn early on too. Once again, learn from the coach. You have to learn your players individually. What motivates them, what turns them off. And I can yell at Marshall, he'll respond well. But I may need to pull Beth aside and just kind of, you know, talk to her one-on-one, -on -one, encourage her, um, find out why did she come to class today frowning or why did she look like she's been crying. So I found myself taking time out, especially the latter part of my year of teaching, um, spending time just one-on-one -on -one with kids. Just, just Sometimes I just need someone to listen to them. Um, so yeah, the style was different. I had to learn to adjust. And I think all of us, and, and we're all lifelong learners, you know, we have to learn too. Um, but getting to know the, the students as individuals, I think is so, so important. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I, I too found myself learning to diversify my approaches for certain students. Um, because again, you know, everyone is so different. And I think that at Sanderson particularly is one thing that I loved about being there, but was also a challenge is that there was such a broad diversity of students at that school. Oh yeah. And you know what? It's interesting you brought that up. Um, I'm going to go back to the basketball analogy. It's easy to take um, 25 players who are of the 25, 20 are all Americans and, and, and you know, create this amazing team. However, if you really want to see a good coach, let's watch this coach who has to go out and recruit and he may not even have one star player, but has to teach them to be this one cohesive team um, with the same goal in mind. Um, to me, with teaching students, if you have a class of 30 students and none of them are soloists, I think I'd rather have a group of kids who can blend, who can sing as an ensemble versus taking 30 soloists, you know, 30 kids or 29 kids who all take voice lessons, um, who their voice teachers may have different philosophies on, you know, vocal pedagogy and try to teach them in a group setting um it's kind of i think it's easier but it also shows you what kind of teacher you are what kind of coach you are when you have to work and you have to figure it out that are having players that are already talented thousand percent you know i i know during the last 10 years of your teaching experience a everyone experienced teaching continuing to get harder and the expectations that are placed on teachers are harder. Um, you know, you mentioned when email 
became a thing, right? And I, I mean, I remember even as a teacher when it wasn't the evolution of email and just the 10 years that I've taught, right? Where it was like barely used, you kind of didn't communicate to, to now it's, well, particularly in the setting that we're using now, but, you know, teachers are continually put under incredibly stressful situations. And within the era that we are in now where everyone is teaching in a different way, everyone is encountering different emotional expectations, um, family things as well. And I know you went through a lot of, um, you know, upheaval, right, with losing your wife, who I know is so meaningful um, and important to you and, and just held things. And I mean, you, you really went through a lot, Marshall, and I don't know how comfortable you feel sharing. It's whatever you feel comfortable with. But as someone that has really taught through personal challenges, what advice do you have for people that are going through the same, um, particularly where we're at right now in the world? You know, I'm I'm very private, and um, I would share more with my students in my classroom than I would with my colleagues. And I remember, um, trying to remember, there. Oh, when I, and I don't know if you know, but I had cancer, and I remember um, my booster president didn't know, and she said. But my daughter told me she knew, but she didn't tell me. And the reason why is because when we talk, when I would communicate with the kids, I wanted them to understand some of the struggles that I was going through. I was going through, even, let me backtrack. The year my wife passed, I don't remember now, I think it was, I missed 30 days of class. And I remember sitting the sandpipers down in a circle it was the night, the day of our concert, and in the rehearsal. You know what, you guys, um, I don't know how many days I've missed, and one of the kids said, you missed over 30. And, and I was just thanking them for their patience and all. But my reason for sharing that is, they went through that year with me, but it also taught them, this is how you deal with um, personal struggles and, and you know, difficulties you've been having in your life. Because the year prior to that, I lost my mom. The year before, I lost my mom. Yeah, before my life. And so, um, you know, I, I also had two students that I can remember specifically. One, it was right before Christmas, literally the day of the Christmas concert. And another one, it was during the awards day ceremony, actually the day before the awards day ceremony, this child's mother passed and her mom, they right before they sang for the awards day ceremony, um, the council walked up to me and whispered in my ear, this child's mom passed. And um, I just remember how I heard for that child. This child lost her mom before I lost my mom. And she was with me during the time when I lost my mom, so she could empathize with me. Um, you know, watching these students lose their parents, but also seeing that, recognizing that music was something that they still could do and kind of distract them, if you will, from what they were doing with at home. And I think with that being said, my point is when and right now, with the difficulties that teachers, I can't imagine, are going through, um, I would think that if a teacher is 
struggling with um, being isolated or, or trying to figure out a new way of teaching, you know, via Zoom or whatever uh, format they use. Um, just being honest with the kids and saying, you know, this is difficult for me. How do you feel? How do you feel about it? I think kids are more apt to open up um, versus, you know, I'm always strong. You'll never see me weak. Um, when, when they see that vulnerability in you, I think that's when they become more open and candid regarding their own circumstances. Absolutely. It's, um, I think if there's one thing that this, the past almost year now has taught us is the power of vulnerability. Because at any point within this year, we have all um, not been okay with the environment that we're in. And we all have a year like that from there, you know, here and there. And we can assume that someone is um, having a rough time with something, but never have we all been going through as a world, right? Quite frankly, the same thing at the same time and been able to be so sensitive to that. And I think, again, to your point, it's forced a lot of vulnerability out of us that needed to be. And it's okay to say that you're sad. It's okay to say that you're angry. Um, getting back to my own circumstances, you know, watching how I responded, I think was most important for them to see how I handled circumstances, how I dealt with it. Um, seeing me take off to go take my wife for her treatment or you know, seeing how I um, was sad some days you know, after I lost my mom or after I lost my wife. You know, just being able to share. I think once again, it, it, it makes them more open to just expressing themselves because there are a lot of students that hold a lot of things in, as you well know, um, because they've been taught not to show emotion. That's a sign of weakness. When in fact, it's a, to me, it's a, it's a sign of strength that you are and that you can hurt, that you are vulnerable, that you um, are sad, right. that you're angry, that you're not sure how you're feeling today. Absolutely. It's um, scary almost if you think about how much they really are watching and how much we really are always teaching even when we are not teaching. They're mm -hmm. watching. They're watching. Yeah, as we as I think about this year and think about you know several different things. Marshall, I'm I'm curious. You as as a as a black man in choral music, in education and, and all this kind of stuff, have you I'm sure you felt that extra pressure as a teacher. I don't, I mean, I feel like race and color probably wasn't even talked about as much when you began teaching or maybe it was, um, but I, I don't know if there's anything you would be willing to share about that perspective as well too, with those that are listening. You know, Beth, I, I, I smile when you said that because we're talking prior to everything that's just recently happened over the past 10 months. Um, I think back to the year when um, 
Uh, what was the kid's name that was in Florida, Sanford? Um, Trayvon Martin. We were actually in Orlando um, or headed to Orlando when all that stuff. No, actually, we were down there that weekend when all that stuff happened. We were at a festival. And I remember we came back and then just a series of things started to happen. Like the, for some reason, I remember these names. I think the guy's name was Freddie Gray. He was killed um, in Baltimore. And that, that there was a riot following that. And I remember some of my students asking me in class because I was very open about race in class. And we talked about that a lot. Because coming from a situation of a predominantly black high school, well, let me rephrase that. The students I taught were majority black in Rocky Mount. Um, I saw a lot of things um, going to festivals and, and just, you know, things happen. Um, but I also had the opportunity to come to Sanderson where it was reversed, you know, where um, the majority of the students I taught were not African-American or black. Um, matter of fact, they weren't just white. You had, when I first got to Sanderson, there were a lot of Asian kids, um, a lot of Japanese students, a lot of Chinese students, a lot of Vietnamese students. Um, very, 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 very few Latino kids there, but it was just a nice variety of students. But I remember talking to the students during the course of the year um, about equality, about just being um, willing to accept people and their differences. And I loved having the classes with a lot of ESL students. Because back when I was at Sanderson, um, back in the, the, the early 90s, um, and even during my daughter's years, um, the late 90s, we had... Um, a lot of ESL because I think at that time Sanderson and um, oh, I can't think of the name. The one that's over by State Athens. We were the only two schools that had ESL programs, and so I actively um, went after the ESL students. And the teacher, um, she would openly just welcome, tell the kids, you know, you can feel welcome if you want to feel a community of feel welcome to get for us. And I remember um, having dialogue in classes where we would talk about stereotypes. And I'll never forget, in that particular class, I had some kids from West Africa, and, and we were asking, um, what are some of the stereotypical questions that, that you get asked? And of course, the white kids were surprised. Like, oh, people actually said that? And you know, of course, they said it, and they were looking at and I heard this two days ago, you know, if I cut you and you cut me, um, we're, both, we're both gonna bleed the same color blood. You know, matter of fact, we may even have the same blood type. We may look different, but there are a lot of, we have a lot of common mouths, if you will, right. between us. Um, and I'm getting back to the Freddie Gray thing. So I was so open about race in my class that I um, remember two of the kids and they were white boys. They asked, they said, so Mr. B, what do you think about what's going on right now with all the police? You know, a lot of you know, the blacks were getting killed. They were um, saying that there was some brutality going on. And it was, I remember it was like one thing after the other, after the other. And I remember taking my glasses off, leaning forward on the piano. And I told them, I said, only difference between now and 75 years ago is that you guys have social media. And I put my glasses on, started class, and I saw one of the boys hunch the other. 
as if it's that total, you know. Um, and what I was sharing with them was that there's nothing that has happened in the past 10 months that has shocked me as being unbelievable, except the fact that it's still going on and that people have you know, just turned a blind eye to it. Um, I'm sorry that so much has happened, but I am thankful that this allowed dialogue. You know, people are more open to talk about it. And some people have become more aware that maybe had no clue. Right. But yeah, you know, I have to rely on my faith. And I have to believe that um, regardless where people come from, you know, and I've taught kids from India, I've taught kids, as I said, from Africa, I've taught kids from Asia, and their parents want the same thing for their kids that your parents wanted for you, that my parents wanted for me, and I wanted for my children. Um, no different. You know, their cultures may be different. And that's the other thing, learning people's cultures. And I remember learning that with my Filipino kids that you never touch their hair. Um, that's insulting to them. And I learned that through the ESL teacher. Um, and it's important to know that when you're dealing with people with different cultures. You don't want to assume what's okay with you is okay with them. Um, this, yeah. So just recognizing um, people's differences and just, you know, Listening, that vulnerability, listening to kids, being respectful um, of things. But you you mentioned, you know, that a, a driver in all of that is also your faith. And anyone that has worked with you knows how important that is um, to you, both in just, it often comes up in conversation, but also you just exude um, the spirit, if you will. And I, I think that then also feeds into the work you've done in church music ministry and, and how those two have perhaps fed each other. Well, thank you. I give God the glory for that. Um, you know, and, and, and working in the school system, there have been times when Sanderson students have had the opportunity to come to my church where I was a minister of music at. And I would never want a kid to say, you're a minister of music, or you actually go to church because of behavior or something that I said or did, you know, towards a student. And granted, I'm not perfect. You know, I've made a lot of mistakes and, and you know, I ask for forgiveness. You know, that's all we can do. You know, but trying to be sincere, just try to be honest and just hoping with people. How, how did you balance being a minister of music and also a choral director? I mean, so many of us have done that, are doing that, and it, Lord knows it's not easy. Oh, no. The biggest difference is remembering in church is worship. Um, doing, I can't say to a group of public school students that, this song we're doing, How Lovely um, Is Thy Dwelling Place, um, I need you to, to, to just take yourself to a place of worship as you sing this. You know, I can't I can't use that analogy with them. It doesn't, it doesn't go over well, especially if someone is not a Christian faith. <laughs> right. Or any faith. But um, trying to, I, regardless of what people, uh, young people's faith, belief may be, I think 
the one thing that I found to be true is that any legitimate faith um, includes love and respect for others. Um, every Muslim student I've ever taught, every Jewish student I've ever taught, every Sikh student I've ever taught, they, they we all came to that one common agreement, you know, that, that yeah, it's about love and treating one another with mutual respect. I love that. And again, a testament to uh, what we do in the classroom, be it a church classroom or a community choir classroom or an actual classroom classroom, the opportunity that we have as music educators to unite people with just their voices that are of all different faiths, backgrounds, nationalities, colors of skin, experience levels, languages is just is, I mean, I, I get, I get, I've got a lot of chill bumps tonight through this conversation, but it's true. It's just, um, it's just so exciting. Um, well, I have to ask you, Marshall, what is one of your favorite pieces of repertoire to perform for students or with students, I guess? Wow. I know that's a big one. Doesn't have to be the one, but you know, one of them, you're like, oh. So many, there's, I can't think of one. I Okay. Oh, gracious. You know, just coming from Christmas, um, I love Christmas music. As a matter of fact, my playlist um, for Christmas music, um, you're too young to know who the Carpenters are. Are you? I have the Carpenters Christmas Portrait book in my music room. Okay, so if you are familiar with the Carpenters, their Christmas album, oh, from the overture, from the beginning, to the last song with Karen Carpenter. Um, that, that, oh my gracious. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, Merry Christmas, darling. The oh yeah, oh yeah, oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, of course, the Messiah, you know, I love, I love the holiday chorus. Um, there's so many other courses from, as a matter of fact, I'm the nerd person, nerdy person I am. A few weeks ago, I was doing something, oh, putting toys together for Christmas and for grandchildren and um, listen to the entire Messiah. I had never listened to the entire Messiah before. Um, and there were like three choruses. I was like, oh my God, how did I miss this? I'm glad I didn't know this before now because I would have been teaching this in high school. I would have taught this. I mean, it's just, but anyway, I, there's so many secular pieces that I enjoy too. Um, but I think Christmas music was my favorite music. Um, because of the carols, the opportunity to sing so many a cappella pieces. Um, this, oh my gracious. I, I love Renaissance music. William Byrd, one of my favorite. Palestrina, I love Palestrina. Um, Bach, my boy. Um, Handel, my man. Um, oh my gracious. I just, say Tobin, he was my dude. Um, and of course, with the 20th century, you know, of course, they're, the Eric Whitakers, they're the, um, oh my gracious, there's so many people I can name. And having the opportunity, I don't know if you're aware, but Moses Hogan was supposed to come to Sanderson before he died. Not know that. What? Yes, 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 yes. Um, and anyway, um, love his stuff. He was such a genuine, and it's crazy, Beth. 
I remember one time just emailing. I saw his email show up somewhere, and I emailed him, and he responded immediately, and he gave me his number, and we talked, and and such a genuine person, just just really extremely intelligent, but um, just very genuine. Now that's been my other experience. I've been blessed to meet quite a few conductors and composers, contemporary composers and arrangers. And the one thing that I've noticed about all of the really, really talented ones, they were very humble, very appreciative, and just very kind human beings. Um, that's, yeah, they all had that same character. Well, I mean, this is going to sound corny, but I mean it. It, you know, like attracts, attracts like. And that is who you are, right? Like that is who you are as a person. And, um, you know, you have done so much for the choral community in Raleigh. Um, quite frankly, I mean, we didn't even jump into all of the other different things that you have been a part of. I know a big ACDA supporter person um, that's involved with ACDA um, on just so many levels, but, you know, authentic, genuine, willing to just take the time to sit with people and be real and hear their story and share yours is, um, it's no surprise that you attract people like that. Oh, you're so kind. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I just really think that I've been blessed. I've had some opportunities and I'm very thankful for those opportunities. Have you ever seen the movie um, Slumdog Millionaire? I have, yeah. Oh my gracious. That that movie is the epitome I think of my life, you know, all of my life experiences culminated to help me to, well, I won't say become, but attempt to become a kind person or, or to try to, to teach music and teach it with a passion, not just teaching notes. Um, just anyway, I, I, I'm just so thankful for all the experiences and people that I've met over the years and you included. And I really appreciate this opportunity. Well, I am so grateful to you, A, for the time tonight that you've sat down um, with me and, and with the listeners, and then also just that transition, right, of teachers. And we were, although it was an unfortunate situation that there was someone between us like it was, so we weren't direct, direct predecessors. In my mind, um, we were. And I will never forget when we sat down in Panera together. Do you remember? Yes. And this is like my favorite. And it's a great story to end on. So Marshall and I are in Panera. We're talking, I mean, just amazing advice, but kudos of advice. And I'll never forget we're sitting there. And um, a girl, I think she, I can't remember if she was working there or if she was just eating there, but she comes up and she goes, Mr. B. And, you know, like gives, and it's the epitome of Marshall Butler, you know, of just the, the musical father figure that you were for that young lady and you are for so many. You're so kind. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, again, thank you for being with us today. And um, when we are back to non-restricted singing and worlds, I know you're always clinicking out and about um, in North Carolina. And if people are willing to pay your travel and all the things, I'm sure you'll go anywhere. Uh, Maybe. I, you know, I just enjoy I enjoy people. Um, you know, I had an opportunity, oh my gracious, it's been a year ago now, this past summer, to shadow Eugene Rogers. I don't know if you know who he is. Mm -hmm. 
at University of Michigan in his summer core program high school. Oh my God, this man was so good. And once again, you know, it's having that passion. He spent his first rehearsal with his group, he spent, because I wrote it down, 20 minutes getting to know all 30, however many students it was in that group person. Just, just getting to know them as individuals. Um, and that said so much about him. I mean, he was obviously, he's obviously a phenomenal musician, extremely smart. Um, but I, I learned that it's so important that people understand that you value them. But also the one thing, something I learned from him that I've, I've tried to do ever since that moment was time, their time. He had an app on his phone that kept time. So he made sure he didn't go overtime with them to make sure they were willing to start class on time because he wanted to let them go on time. And I, I you know, and memorizing music, you know, having the music, doing your score study thoroughly. Um, but once again, that's just the epitome of, of what good musicians should be doing anyway. So, you know, it's still learning. I'm still learning. So much to learn. I love it. I love it. Well, Thank you for your time. I don't want to take any more of, of your time tonight as well. And um, I will be sure to include your email address if you're willing, if anyone wants to reach out to you and, and learn more. Um, but again, thank you so much, Marshall. Thank you. Hey, Choir Baton listener. Thanks for checking out this episode of the Choir Baton podcast. And before you leave, I wanted to remind you of all the ways that you can connect with Choir Baton right now. You can follow us on Instagram, watch this interview on YouTube, and we're putting out more content on TikTok and Facebook as I speak. You can also always check us out at choirbaton.com. On choirbaton.com, you'll find information for how to join the Choir Baton teaching membership waiting list or where to sign up for our newest online course, Revamp. The teaching membership provides teachers a framework and student-facing videos, worksheets, and assessments to how to teach choral music concepts related to musicianship. And Revamp is a two-hour on-demand course with a 40-plus page workbook of frameworks and guides to help you revamp your outlook to both planning your time spent planning for rehearsals and your rehearsal itself. This course is the first of its kind for secondary music educators, and even though it's centered within the context of choral music, it's really applicable for any music educator. As always, thank you for being a part of More People Singing with Choir Baton.